Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Amy Swearer. And I'm Giancarlo Conaparo. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome to another episode of SCOTUS 101. Welcome back to the show. GC, I have to start off with a confession. Do I, uh, do I want to hear this confession? You do. So there, there weren't any opinions this week. There weren't any super significant cert denials. RBG didn't beat cancer again this week. So I was, I was a little worried coming into this that we were going to be like ESPN during coronavirus, covering whatever the SCOTUS equivalent of the world beanbag throwing championship <laughs> is. What, what is ESPN doing these days? Uh, again, I think covering things like here's what Tom Brady made for dinner today. And so I was a bit worried that like our version of that would be like, here's an in-depth look at Justice Breyer's morning routine. Riveting stuff. Um, so do we actually have anything to talk about? We, you know, we actually do not a big week in terms of the court doing things, but a big week in terms of other court related goings on. And for our listeners, I am entirely joking. Of course, we have an episode full of things to talk about. We have uh, some interesting cases coming down the pipeline, a new documentary on Roe versus Wade, uh, and some challenges to COVID-19 orders on an emergency basis. And I also interview uh, veteran legal journalist Stuart Taylor Jr., and that's definitely an interesting one. All right, so we do have a loaded docket today, so let's go ahead and get started. First up, there is a blog called Empirical SCOTUS run by uh, Professor Adam Feldman, and he looks at all sorts of nitty-gritty data that you didn't even think existed about the court. Right now, what he's done is gone through all of the telephonic oral arguments, collected all sorts of data points, and compared them to previous uh, regular oral argument. He's had some really interesting observations. So we've taken a few key ones for you. Uh, first off, under this new telephonic format, both the advocates and the justices spoke more words per argument than they used to under the old system. For advocates, this was a particularly striking development because the average increase for, per oral argument was a thousand words more, which means they're getting to say a lot more under telephonic oral arguments than they were under normal oral arguments. You know, GC, and that's, that's very interesting to me because I, I know a lot of people, myself included, felt during some of these arguments that during questions, sometimes there wasn't a lot of time left for the advocates to speak. And so it's just interesting seeing how the data actually played out differently, that overall, they're, they're actually getting more time. Yeah, quite a bit more. It's Had I not known this data, and you had asked me that question, I would have given you that response. It seems intuitive that with the time limits, they weren't getting to talk as much. But it turned out, actually, the opposite was true. Now, when it comes to the justices, who's speaking more? That would be Thomas, obviously, but he's a bit of an outlier. But the biggest increases go to Kagan and Gorsuch, who talked quite a bit more under this new system than they did under the regular oral argument system. Yeah, and well, to be clear, that's that's Thomas speaking more during telephonic oral arguments than he was 
during normal or arguments. That's not in relationship to other justices. Right. Who's speaking less? Uh, that will probably surprise no one, but the tighter time controls have cut back on Breyer and Sotomayor's uh, questioning or typical words per argument. What is surprising about that, though, is that you might expect that Breyer had the biggest drop because he's known for his long rambling questions. Actually, it was Sotomayor who had the bigger drop. And the reason for that is it's even more surprising is that on average, she speaks more during oral arguments than Breyer does, which if you had told me that, I would have said, no, absolutely not. That can't be true. Yeah, I, I would be in the same boat there that I would have put money on uh, Breyer if I were a betting person. But it is surprising. And I think some of this comes from uh, perhaps that Justice Breyer has simply been on the court longer. So he sort of worked up this reputation as you know, the, the rambling philosophy professor who has these long-winded questions where he's like, let's you know work through this esoteric philosophical dilemma together type of thing. And that Justice Sotomayor just may not have worked up that reputation yet. Um, so it is just this interesting dynamic because I was with you, GC. I would have put money for sure on Justice Breyer. And in less data-heavy news, if you're looking for something to do during quarantine, there is a new documentary available on the streaming site, Hulu. The documentary is called AKA Jane Roe, and it explores the life of Norma McCorvey who is the appellant seeking access to an abortion in the Supreme Court's landmark decision, Roe v. Wade. Years after that decision effectively created a constitutional right to an abortion, McCorvey converted to Christianity, publicly disavowed her earlier stance on abortion, and worked prominently with pro-life groups seeking to have the opinion of Roe v. Wade overturned. And so this documentary sort of explores the life of the person behind Roe v. Wade. The documentary has made waves for including McCorvey's deathbed allegation that she, quote, was used as a trophy by these pro-life groups. In her words, quote, I took their money and they put me out in front of the cameras and told me what to say. Now, others who have known McCorvey, uh, who passed away in 2017, have since come out and alleged that it was the producers of the documentary, not the pro-life groups, who took advantage of McCorvey. Amy, now, let me ask you a question about this. Let's say that um, that it's true that McCorvey was not sincere in her recanting of, uh, of her support for abortion. What does that mean for the legal debate around Roe v. Wade? And, and this is what's very interesting here, GC, is that you're seeing a lot of sort of more societal arguments about how this undermines the pro-life position or, you know, lends more credence to the pro-abortion position. But I think what's important here is that from a legal standpoint, neither the pro-abortion nor the pro-life arguments have ever really hinged on Norma McCorvey's personal thoughts about the morality or legality or constitutionality of abortion. Um, and I think what you also see in a lot of commentary on this documentary is maybe an unhealthy conflation of legal arguments with a single person's position, as if Norma McCorvey is the beginning or the end of the debate. And I think that, that sort of gets lost sight of in some of the commentary on this documentary and on this deathbed confession. Very interesting. 
uh, in court news, uh, there is a California church that has challenged Governor Newsom's stay-at-home order on an emergency basis. Um, the current stay-at-home order mandates that churches remain closed. Now, the reason for the expedited filings is that Pentecost is this Sunday, and these churches want to hold services. The church argues that Governor Newsom's current order allows retail stores and offices to open, subject to some restrictions, but treats churches differently and regulates them with a more restrictive framework. Justice Kagan handles emergency petitions coming out of the Ninth Circuit, and she's ordered California to respond by Thursday night at 8 p.m. She has the authority to rule on the emergency petition herself or, as is more common, to refer it to the full court. GC, I would like to personally point out something that I found very intriguing, if you will, in one of these filings. Um, so on the one hand, I, I think there are a lot of very valid underlying constitutional issues coming out of these stay-at-home orders. You are seeing arguably uh, churches and, and other houses of worship being treated differently, such as being told, for example, you, know, you can't do a drive-through communion service even though drive-through uh, fast food is acceptable, just as one example. But it was very interesting to me that one of the arguments in these emergency filings seemed to be along the lines of, dear Supreme Court, you should really intervene here or else thousands of churches are going to do it anyway in defiance of the order, which to me isn't really a legal argument. And, and it's also not a very compelling argument, uh, you know, essentially to say, look, tell us that we can do this or we're going to do it anyway. And I just found that very intriguing that in a lot of legal circles, that argument has actually been the one that has been played up the most when describing sort of what the main line of argumentation is. Yeah, that... And so it's just, it, it was just sort of mind boggling to me um, that, that this was sort of the argument that got brought forward the most. I've heard more compelling arguments, to be honest. We are not yet done discussing the legal ongoings with coronavirus. On Tuesday, the Supreme Court denied the federal government's request to temporarily stay a federal court order that could potentially lead to over 800 inmates being released or transferred from a federal prison over concerns about COVID-19. The too long didn't read version of this is that the court denied the request for very technical procedural reasons. But what's the background here? So last month, inmates at a low security federal prison in Ohio filed a lawsuit arguing that they faced a disproportionately high risk of becoming ill at this facility where nine inmates had already died from the virus and where something like 135 other inmates had fallen ill. A federal district court ordered the Bureau of Prisons last month to evaluate elderly or at-risk prisoners for either early release or transfer to another facility. On May 19th, the federal district court found that the Bureau had been moving too slowly in complying with that order and told the Bureau that it now had until May 26 to explain why any of the hundreds of at-risk or elderly prisoners who weren't eligible for early release couldn't be transferred to another facility. And this is where it gets a bit technical. This week, the Supreme Court denied the federal government's request to stay that original April injunction. The court noted that the district court had issued a new order, that May 19th order, 
imposing additional measures, which the government had not yet appealed. Essentially, if the government has problems with this new May 19th order, it has to appeal or seek a stay for that particular order. Notably, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch would have granted the application for the stay anyway. So I expect we'll see this again pretty soon? Yeah, and I would expect that we continue to see a lot of various types of of similar challenges um, from all sorts of ongoings with coronavirus, not just the issues happening with inmate releases and and the First Amendment, um, but you're seeing similar types of challenges in the Second Amendment field um, and, and frankly, just all across the board. So this is an issue, I think, that we're going to see all throughout the summer. You know, it just occurs to me, and a question that I'd love to answer is, has, since coronavirus has been a thing, has the Supreme Court seen an uptick in the usual amount of emergency petitions? You know, I don't know. We should ask Adam Feldman at Empirical SCOTUS if he has been keeping track of that. Good plan. Well, next up, I interview veteran legal journalist Stuart Taylor Jr., Stuart is, as Justice Scalia would have said, burdened with a law degree, and so has reported on legal developments for nearly 50 years. He started his career at the Baltimore Sun and worked at the New York Times and other publications. He's published three books, two involving due process concerns at universities, and one, a data-driven look at how affirmative action negatively affects the people it is supposed to help. We talk about his career, the present state of the media, and he offers advice to young journalists. Stuart, thank you for joining us on the show. I'm glad to be with you. So, Stuart, you were a journalist even before law school. Did you always know that that was your calling? No, um, you know, and I'm only 72, so I'm still trying to figure out what to do when I grow up. But um, but it was it was always a possibility. Uh, and as I came to graduating from college, the two main possibilities were law school and journalism. And the reason journal, one reason journalism was on my list was that my dad was a journalist. So you started as a journalist, but then you did end up going to law school. Can you tell me a little bit about that yeah. transition? Sure. What I did was I applied to law school out of, um, out of undergraduate school and got into Harvard Law School. Uh, but in the mean, but I, but I didn't, I put it off. I, I said, well, let's try journalism first. At least the money's flowing in my direction rather than uh, out of me into somebody else's direction, even though there isn't much. So I was lucky to get an opportunity to start as a entry level reporter at the Baltimore Sun, which at the time was, was a, one of the best smaller, you know, non-huge papers in the country. Uh, they had foreign bureaus all over the place, big Washington bureau. I was, I started at the, at the police beat, which is kind of the standard beginner thing going around, uh, checking out to the various police districts, uh, finding out who got killed the night before and watching little trials and stuff like that. And over time I moved to, uh, a, a rural County bureau and then the Baltimore County bureau, which was a big County. It was probably more than half our population our circulation, I mean, and uh, was there for three years or so from early 71 to mid 74. And I kept thinking about going to law school, um, but I kept putting it off. Finally, I got to the point where I thought, surely I'm not, they're not going to take me again if I put it off. So I decided it was time to try Harvard Law School, which seemed like a pretty good 
pretty good opportunity in terms of long-term security. I wasn't so sure about journalism in terms of long-term security. Hmm. So I went to Harvard Law School. And after Harvard, you did practice um, at a big law firm for a few years. How was that? That's almost three years. The firm, um, it's, it's bigger now. But it was pretty big then by those standards, about 160 lawyers. It was called Wilmer, Cutler, and Pickering. It was in uh, Washington. It was one of the best firms, I think, in Washington. It still is. And um, and I was lucky to get a job, an entry-level job there as a junior associate. And I had three good years there. I liked it. It was very hard work. Um, but I had never, and one reason I'd always flirted with journalism was I'd never really come to like being a part of an adversary system, as in you represent whoever hires you, whether they're right or wrong. I kind of thought, sort of like the idea of being able to choose sides, which as a, as a lawyer isn't, isn't often an option. Uh, but I, I was trying it out, and I probably would have stayed there, but for the fact that uh, through mutual personal connections, I ended up getting an opportunity to interview with the New York Times Washington bureau chief, and they actually finally, uh, after a bunch of interviews, offered me a job in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times, which I had thought was very unlikely. And it seemed like, my gosh, I've got this great opportunity to sort of jump into journalism at a pretty good level. And so I said goodbye to my friends at the law firm with some, with some uh, mixed feelings uh, and went to the New York Times and, uh, in 1980, three days after I got married. At that point in time, did you know that you would be covering legal issues? Is that what you intended? Yes, that's that's what, and that's why they hired me, because my journalism experience at the Baltimore Sun, which was pretty good, wasn't really of the quality that would have gotten me an offer to work at the New York Times, Washington. And I didn't want to work in New York. I wanted the Washington Bureau or nothing. Um, and they thought, uh, the bureau chief at the time, Bill Kovich, uh, thought that I could add something to their coverage of legal affairs. And there was a lot of talk at the time uh, that legal affairs were becoming uh, more and more important in terms of covering them in journalism. All the big newspapers already had reporters at the Supreme Court, but there was a lot going on with legal implications outside the Supreme Court. And the New York Times, uh, you know, that's really what they hired me to do was to cover things going on with, you know, where legal background was useful outside the Supreme Court. Uh, I did some time at the Justice Department. I wrote about lower court decisions. I wrote about legal issues percolating around the country. And I had a good five years uh, doing that. I also wrote a lot of general assignment stories when there wasn't anything of, of legal nature uh, going on. And then after, after I'd been there five years, I moved to the New York, I moved to the uh, to the Supreme Court beat, which is a full-time beat then and now at the New York Times. Uh, my friend Linda Greenhouse had been covering it for a few years. She left on maternity leave. Uh, they put me at the Supreme Court. I did that for three years and enjoyed it a great deal, but ended up leaving after three years in 1988. And where did you go after that? Uh, I went to... Um, uh, I went to a, a company called American Lawyer Media, run by a, quite a great uh, entrepreneurial journalist named Steve Brill. The American Lawyer Magazine, which is still pretty strong, was the flagship Legal Times in Washington, was where I had a had a uh, uh, had a cubicle, 
And the idea of making the switch, uh, one, I was going to get paid more, even though it was to step down in terms of the prestige of the publication. Uh, and two, I was I had always been interested in, in writing opinion journalism. And in those days, unlike today, you weren't supposed to write opinion journalism in the news columns on the front page or anywhere else. And so, you know, that those are the rules. I, I, I played by the rules, and I wish people still did. Um, but I was also interested in becoming a, you know, uh, uh, an op-ed columnist uh, or something in the nature of writing commentary where my opinion would be part of it. And it wouldn't be masquerading as neutral reporting. It would be uh, fact-based reporting, but with some opinion mixed in. And that was what uh, I had an opportunity to do when I went to American Lawyer Media. I was there for eight years. I wrote uh, uh, opinion pieces. They were sort of like op-eds, but about twice as long as the typical New York Times op-ed, which was nice. I like to write long. And, um, and also very long articles for the American Lawyer Media feature articles uh, on legal issues, but with opinion mixed in. Mm. Now, on the subject of opinion in journalism, I don't know if you saw this, but yesterday the New York Times, oh, sorry, the Wall Street Journal ran an op-ed by Van Gordon Sauter. He's the former president of CBS News, and he says in his piece uh, that a return to balance in um, what is ostensibly supposed to be objective coverage um, is unviable. And so the best solution would be for the media to sort of embrace it's bias and to be open and honest about that. I don't know if you read that piece or if you have thoughts about that. I haven't read that particular piece yet. I will read it, but I have thoughts on the subject. Um, I can see why he says that because uh, I don't think there's really a, an unbiased news organization in the country, certainly not the New York Times, which I thought was relatively balanced when I was there in the 80s, which I think has become a very politically correct uh, left-leaning uh, uh, place where opinion is all over the front page and the opinions are uniformly left-leaning. Uh, I, I think they've, I've written a lot of very critical coverage in the New York Times since then. I think the same is true to some extent of the Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC, uh, the Wall Street Journal, of course, their editorial page leans hard to the right. And I don't think any of that is gonna change. Um, and so maybe Van Gordon Sauter's idea is is the way it has to end. I think it'd be an unhappy ending because if everybody's reading or watching news coverage that just tells them what they want to hear, reinforces their own opinions, which is what's happening now, you're not going to have much independent thinking going on in this country. It's not a whole lot. You know, the value of a free press and free speech is people get exposed to a diversity of opinions. Supposedly, that was part of the value of the college education too. But that's not happening. Very few people are reading or watching the diversity of opinions. It's much easier and more comfortable and understandable uh, to follow the publications that are telling you what you want to hear and making you feel good about your own opinions. I think that's very unhealthy for the country. It's fairly common throughout history and throughout the world uh, what I'd really like to see is is the right billionaire starting up a publication that uh, that tries to be what the New York Times was 30, 40, 50 years ago, uh, which is down the middle, which is separating the fact from the opinion. Uh, and, you know, balance, you know, there's always a little opinion that goes into what you decide makes a story important. 
But the difference between the kind of thing you see on the front pages these days and what I'd like to see is a careful, balanced uh, piece of journalism about, let's say it's about President Trump's uh, refusal to put his, you know, to give over his tax returns, just pick one at random, which is now before the Supreme Court. Uh, everything you would want to know if you were making an argument either for or against Trump on that would be somewhere in a good article on that subject. That's not true now. There's a lot of selective omission by the big newspapers and uh, the big broadcasting networks. What they, you know, let's say if they're on Trump's side, you're not going to get a whole lot out of the article on, on, you know, say the Washington Times or uh, Fox News. You're not going to get much that would give you an impression as why somebody else might not be on Trump's side and vice versa. If you're reading the New York Times on an issue uh, about, you know, important to Trump, uh, you're probably not going to get exposed to what a pro-Trump point of view would be. Mm-hmm. You should be exposed both ways. So I think it's very unfortunate to surrender uh, to the idea that that uh, we shouldn't expect our news media to tell us uh, what's going on in a balanced way. Mm-hmm. So if you were out looking for a really balanced perspective, where do you go? I found where I have to go is I don't really find it. And, you know, the Wall Street Journal may be a little more balanced in its news columns as distinguished from its very conservative editorial page than the other big newspapers. Um, But I don't think uh, any any newspaper or news network is is very balanced. And so I think where you have to do is you need to read different uh, or to watch different uh, news outlets and that carry both points of view. So, for example, I write a lot for Real Clear Politics, which is a website journalist, and it's mostly um, aggregating articles published elsewhere. And every day, if you look at the front page uh, on the Internet of Real Clear Politics, you will see right-leaning articles and left-leaning articles Mm -hmm. on every subject. You will see Paul Krugman at the New York Times writing a left-lane article on whatever the latest uh, big economic issue is. And then right underneath it, you'd see somebody else writing a right-lane article for, let's say, the Wall Street Journal editorial page. That way, I think the best thing you can do these days to get a balanced perspective is to read read opinion pieces coming from both sides. The problem with it is it takes a long time to read all that stuff. And, you know, it takes twice as long. <laughs> you have to read two articles on every subject than if you can sort of trust the one article you like to read. And most people don't have that kind of time uh, to read a balanced uh, uh, set of articles on things. And therefore, they understandably, if they're conservatives, they're, they're very happy to read the Wall Street Journal editorial page. If they're liberals, they're very happy to read the New York Times and its editorial page. Uh, but if they want balanced coverage, they'd have to read, say, both, along with a bunch of other publications. Not many people have time to do that. I see. Now, Stuart, over the course of your career, you have at times earned both the praise and ire of people on both sides of the political aisle, which is probably the mark of a good journalist. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I like the idea that it's the mark of a good journalist. I'm not sure everybody would say it. Uh, but, um, yeah, but I, you know, and I, I am a moderate centrist in my politics. I have been most of the time. I've probably drifted a little bit 
more from from a little right of center to left of center to a little right of center. But I don't think that's because I've changed my opinions. I think that's because the whole spectrum of journalism has moved to the left of center, and I'm still kind of where I started. So, for example, all my life, I've thought free speech is very important, civil liberties are very important, uh, and uh, due process is very important. Those used to be values that were championed mainly by liberals. Now, they've, to a large extent, in certain contexts, been abandoned by liberals. Uh, And the New York Times really doesn't stand up for free speech across the board anymore. It stands up for free speech for the New York Times and others like the New York Times. And the same is true of elsewhere. So I think uh, my first long opinion piece, when I moved to opinion pieces for the for the Washington, I'm sorry, for the American Lawyer in 1989, was a critique of the Wall Street Journal editorial pages, uh, coverage and reporting and opinion on legal issues. And my complaint, it was an editorial page, so I wasn't complaining that they had opinion. My complaint was that I didn't think they were they were being uh, very straightforward about the facts. I thought they were distorting facts in order to make their opinions seem easier and obviously. And I think I think it was right then. They didn't like it, obviously. A lot of other opinion, uh, conservatives didn't like it. And since, but in recent years, I've become much more critical of the New York Times mm. and their editorials because I think they're coming uh, from way left of center, whereas the Wall Street Journal editorial page is still coming from way right of center. So when I become more critical of the New York Times, for example, that gets a whole different group of people mad at me. I have found over time, since most of my career, uh, the media has been to a large extent dominated by people leaning on the leaning left. Not a bad thing. It's just a fact. I found over time that uh, conservatives are a little more forgiving if once in a while I write something criticizing their side because they know that sometimes I write things uh, that take their side and they find that's not true of a whole lot of other people. Do you think it's possible for a journalist who is personally not moderate but hues strongly right or left to maintain impartiality in their work? I think it is, sure. Uh, but, But, you know, I don't think it's encouraged these days by the editors. I think the editors at the major newspapers encourage people to take the ideological line that the newspapers chosen to follow. And therefore, I think it'd be very hard to do now uh, because you're in an atmosphere where you don't get rewarded for being balanced and for being straightforward and for avoiding, you know, for disclosing everything that anybody would want to know. Uh, but I think it's certainly possible when I was at the New York times writing straight news, uh, you know, I, my my views were probably left to center, not far left to center, but near left to center. And, you know, I knew how to write an article that uh, that didn't just uh, uh, appeal to people who had my mildly left to center views. So do you think, say, say some billionaire comes along and he's committed to creating a newspaper, like you said, that's really devoted to being fair and balanced. Do you think that there is actually a market for that newspaper? Very good question. I hope that a market would develop. I don't think there's a market for it right away, but I think 
you know, people would come to there, particularly people who don't want to have to read two articles in different publications on every issue. Uh, I think people would come to appreciate it as having a baseline of, you know, factual integrity that you can use uh, as you develop your opinions on things, mm-hmm. as opposed to being served opinion straight up. Uh, I think it, there should be a market for it. And I'm sort of surprised it hasn't happened. Uh, I think the New York Times was like that. Uh, let's say in the 80s, 70s, 60s, to a, to a certain extent, it was leaning left of center. Just about all the reporters who were either Democrats or at least none of them were Republicans even back then. Uh, but the executive editor who hired me, Abe Rosenthal, uh, was militantly uh, committed to telling both sides of every story uh, to not being biased. And when reporters uh, showed bias in the way they wrote their stories, he slammed them. He came mm-hmm. down hard on them. He, he fired some people. And, and you know, he, you know, people were afraid to cross him. So it, uh, it had a lot of it, it, the effect of encouraging pretty balanced journalism across the way. Uh, apparently, it's on his gravestone. I read recently, Abe Rosenthal, uh, he kept the paper straight. That's what he always said he wanted to be his on his gravestone, and apparently that is on his gravestone. What do you think? Can you unpack for me a little bit about how that shift happened? Um, gra- gradually, it drifted, and I think it's because of the polarization of the country. The papers were probably biased, less biased, say, in the... 50s, 60s, 70s, maybe, than than before or after. And one reason was that the country was much less polarized ideologically and much more monochromatic, a little left of center, a little right of center, not too far left, not too far right. You know, socialists were out of, uh, were in bad odor, but also extreme right-wing conservatives were in bad odor. And because at the time, a major newspaper needed to be read by both liberals and conservatives. They needed to be bought by both liberals and conservatives and have ad, their ads read by both liberals and conservatives to be economically viable. Uh, and so part of the business model of a newspaper like the New York Times, let's say in the 60s, uh, 70s, 80s, 80s when I was there, was, well, we need, to, we need Republican. You know, we know the Republicans aren't going to like us as well as the Democrats do, but we need the Republicans to take us seriously and to think of us as basically honest, or it's going to hurt our business model. It's going to cost us money. As time passed, the Vietnam War, the leftward drift of the universities, uh, the civil rights movement, various other things shifted the ideological balance of much of the country much farther to the left than it had been before. And almost in reaction to that, uh, another large part of the country shifted to the right. So these days, there really isn't much of a market. I hope there would develop one, as I said earlier. There really isn't really, a mar- you know, very few conservatives read the New York Times because they think they're getting good information out of it. Some of them read it in order to get themselves mad. And, and liberals <laughs> don't read the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Uh, and the New York Times' business model has shifted. Uh, this has been said publicly by a former editor I know, Tom Kuntz, who's now at Real Clear Politics. Uh, he was at the New York Times for a long time as a mid-level editor, and he reported in an article he wrote, in, in actually in something he said to me for a book I wrote a few years ago, uh, on how in the business meetings, 
it became clear that the editorials and the news articles were all pitching to a certain kind of reader. And that was a pretty left-leaning kind of reader. And it's and so it's in, in the end it's driven by economics, uh, which but it's behind that it's driven by polarization of the country. Uh, there's not enough of a common ground among liberals and conservatives anymore, so that they're all going to want to get their news from the same places. So it seems to me that then there you have a vicious self-reinforcing cycle here between polarization and uh, increased or decreased objectivity in news coverage. I think that's exactly right. I think so, it's exactly right. And you know, to some extent, you, you know, if a young young you know young person comes out of college and goes to the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal editorial page and rises to the top by being or or news and does very well at the New York Times in part by leaning left and at the Wall Street Journal, let's say, in part by leaning right. I don't, I don't I don't really fault that young person very much because that's what's encouraged by uh, the top editors and by the economic model and by the whole atmosphere they grow into. And so a lot of young young reporters don't really even know what it means to be writing balanced coverage. Huh. So and, and it's particularly because in college they certainly weren't getting balanced coverage of the right. world in college in terms of, you know, college, they were getting pretty much fed a straight, straight, politically correct diet. And so then you get to the newspaper and it's, you know, that's your kind of ideological intellectual base and you carry on with it. So what's the end game? Is this just the way it is now? I think this is just the way it is now, unless Unless there's a reaction against it, I haven't seen it really happening. Unless enough people become become tired of uh, of of kind of being fed a uh, fed a biased diet and start looking for something that gives them a better understanding of what the people who don't already agree with them think. I don't see it happening. I hope it will happen. Stuart, with uh, the last few minutes we've got, I want to return to your um, your career with a couple questions. In particular, one thing that becomes apparent reading your work is that you have been able to develop incredible access and even very close trusting relationships with many of the people you've covered. How did that come about? Um, you know, I just hope by doing my job in a way that uh, that they respected uh, as honest and as straightforward. And also, I think uh, one, you know, it's it's part of a cliche of journalism that unless people uh, say off the record, everything they say to you from the minute you start, they start talking is something you can just go put straight into print. And I kind of had that conceit when I was young. But now the way I approach things in part because I am, a, you know, writing opinion often is, I tell everyone I'm interviewing about anything, nothing you say in this conversation will go beyond me unless I come back to you and you consent in advance to me publishing it. I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to quote you as saying. If you, you know, if you want me to change it, I'll change it. Uh, and, you know, I think that gives people a certain confidence, especially when they find that you adhere to it, uh, that they're going to be dealt with fairly. Now, I wouldn't say that, I should be clear, if I was a reporter covering the White House and I was interviewing people behind the scenes, sources or something like that, 
then I think, you know, something a little bit less indulgent to the people you're interviewing, you know, you have to be a little bit more, uh, you know, tougher in terms of, no, that's what you said. I'm not changing it. But in the kind of work I do, I'm usually talking to people I think of as reasonable people worth talking to. And I want them to trust me. And I try to behave in a way that gets them to trust me. For any aspiring journalists or young journalists who might listen in, what advice would you give? Oh, boy. Um, my advice would be uh, to, you know, if if you want to be serving the public interest well, as opposed to just, you know, climbing a ladder, a career ladder, uh, you should be one of the people who is trusted across the ideological spectrum to play things straight when you're talking about facts. And, and when you're, you know, when, when you're giving your opinion, a, in, in news columns, you probably shouldn't be doing that unless your editor wants you to. Um, and, and, but you, you know, you should, certainly at least tell both sides of every story. Now, it's easy to say that. Uh, you know, there's more than two sides to every story. If you tell both sides of every every story, it goes on and on and on, and it gets too long. So it's, it's, a, it's an aspiration. It's not something everybody's going to achieve all the time, but it's a good aspiration. And Stuart, we have one final question for you. We asked of all our guests who come on the show, if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? Well, I've given some thought to this over the years. And even though the one I'm going to pick is somebody I've already talked to a lot and I, he became my favorite justice, um, uh, I'd, I'd do it again because I enjoyed him so much. And he was had a good sense of humor. It was Justice Thurgood Marshall, uh, obviously the first uh, African-American uh, ever to sit on the Supreme Court and a towering figure, but he also had a very funny, self-deprecating sense of humor. Humor. Uh, he was generous in his assessment. You know, he he had strong ideological leanings, but he was generous in his assessments of his colleagues, even when he was mad at him. Uh, so, just to give you an example, uh, I used to go to his chambers and sit around and uh, hope, you know get him to talk. And we usually wouldn't talk about current issues. Uh, I wasn't getting information that I could run out and write an article about. They, they were all off-the-record conversations. But he tells me once he was watching former President Jimmy Carter's speech to the 1988 Democratic National Convention on TV. So Marshall says to me, I said to my wife, babe, he sure looks old. He was 80 when he said this to me. <laughs> and my wife said, have you looked in the mirror lately, Thurgood? <laughs> Uh, and, and then he went on, he said, every once in a while, you have to look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself, what do you think? Who do you think you are? You aren't so special. Now I say, and this was a memorial I wrote about him in which I reported this among a lot of other yarns he told, I think he was the greatest lawyer of the 20th century. Uh, not so much in the sense of intellectual razzle dazzle. But he, more than anyone else alive, helped break the system uh, of segregation uh, that dominated the country throughout his early life and much of his life. And he went around the country working for the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. He went into small towns. He defended people facing the death penalty. He got run out of town. He got threatened. 
Uh, he had people say, you ought to take a gun, Thurgood, when you go into that place. He didn't do it. And uh, he had physical courage. He had moral courage. And uh, he knew how to get things done. Uh, he argued Brown versus Board of Education in the Supreme Court. As a justice, uh, I think he was actually past his prime when he got to the Supreme Court. I think he was a good, worthy justice, but he wasn't an eloquent writer. Uh, and he often uh, voted with people he agreed with as a, you know, and, and follow their lead on the court. So I wouldn't call him the greatest justice of any century, but I still think he was the greatest lawyer of, of the 20th century and maybe of American history. Fascinating. Well, Stuart, thanks so much for joining us. Very happy to be with you. Thanks for having me. It's always fascinating to get an insider's take, especially on something as poorly understood and yet ubiquitous as how the media operates. And Stuart really has seen it all over the years. Well, next up, it's time for trivia. With ESPN out of material, we decided that SCOTUS 101 should pull double duty giving you the best of Supreme Court news and all the sports ball trivia you crave. Yes, I am I am here for this. I'm Amy. here for pulling double duty. I am going to play Stump Amy with Supreme Court sports trivia. All right, hopefully I don't embarrass myself. Let's go. <laughs> Question number one. The top floor of the Supreme Court has a room reserved for sports ball. Sports. Ball. Do you know what is on the top floor of the Supreme Court? I do. I know this one. Uh, also referred to as the highest court in the land, there is a basketball court that the justices and their clerks can play on. Very well done. That's point one for you. It only gets harder from here. Excellent. Excellent. Which Supreme Court justice suffered an injury while playing basketball with law clerks on the highest court in the land? Oh, geez. Um... Do, do I get a time frame here? Yes, 1993. And the law clerk in question was himself a former NBA player and Olympic athlete. Oh, man. 1993. Was it Scalia? I want to say Scalia was on the court by then. But that's going to be embarrassing if he wasn't. He wa We're going to go with Scalia. Sadly, no. It was Clarence Thomas. Ah. Clarence Thomas okay. tore his Achilles tendon while attempting a jump shot while playing with his clerks uh, in 1993. The clerk, one of the clerks with whom he was playing was Carl Tilleman, who is an NBA player and former Olympic athlete. That is a brutal injury. I've not torn my Achilles, but I have known a number of people who have, and that is... Could you imagine how Tilleman was feeling at that at the moment? <laughs> I injured Clarence Thomas. So supposedly Clarence Thomas turned to uh, Carl after he suffered his injury. And he said, Carl, I want you to remember this for the rest of your life, what you did to me. And I bet he does remember that <laughs> for the rest of his life. Supposedly he was, he was joking. He said it with a laugh, according to Carl. Uh, next question. Which Supreme Court justice is the only one to be in the College Football Hall of Fame? I know this one. I know this one. That would be Byron Wizard White. Well done. Well done. Wizard was his uh, NBA um, 
uh, nickname. Do you know what university he played for? Oh my, oh, it's, it's in the back of my mind and you're going to say it and I'm not going to forgive myself for forgetting it. G can you give me a general region of the United States? Sure. Uh, the Midwest. Was it Northwestern? No, it was University of Colorado Boulder. Okay. Okay. That's right. I got a half point. I got half of that question. Well done. Uh, Justice White also played in the NFL. Do you know which two teams he played for? Again, I, this is killing me. This is one of those things that I've known and have since forgotten. Shall I tell you the answer? I, I believe one of them was the Detroit Lions. Well done. You are correct. The other was the Pittsburgh Pirates. The Pittsburgh Oh, that's right. They were the Pirates before the Steelers. That's exactly right. Okay. Hey, that, you... that was not fair. That was, that was a defunct team. <laughs> well, it was a long time ago. Well, that's it for SCOTUS Trivia. As you can see, we've got you covered on sports news, so you can cancel your subscriptions to ESPN and meet us here every week for more SCOTUS news. Well, folks, that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts, and I guess, for today, your sports. And please, if you love us, be sure to leave us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Amy Swear and Giancarlo Conaparo. Sound design by Lauren Evans, Valia Rampersad, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.